Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And that includes the mini series we are running over on our Blister Podcast on the topic of mountain town economics and the crisis of affordable housing, where we now have published three conversations on the topic. And we believe that they are really important conversations for anyone who lives in a mountain town or anyone who loves to visit them. So I'd encourage you to check those out over on our Blister Podcast channel, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts or on our website. Also, we want to make sure that everyone is up to date regarding the different types of camping available in our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado and where those different types of camping are permitted. So we've included a link to an article in the show notes of this episode that details all of that. So check that out if you're heading this way to do some hiking or trail running or, I don't know, hurdle running, mountain mountain hurdle running. You could invent that if you came to the Gunnison Valley. So, you know, or any or all of the above. So anyway, again, check out that link to the article in the show notes of this episode. Okay, our guest today has appeared multiple times on Off the Couch, in part because he is one of the smartest people we know, and also because Sanjay is incredibly passionate about running. And given everything that's been going on in the world of running, including the Olympics, I hit Sanjay up to see if he'd be down to talk about what he regarded to be some of the most intriguing stuff happening over this past month. And as I think you will find in this episode, this was quite a bright idea of mine because Sanjay is just so good at laying out the accomplishments and the context and the backstories of runners in all types of different disciplines. Now, we did record this conversation just before the start of UTMB, so we won't really be talking about UTMB in this conversation, but I do want to congratulate all the runners including Courtney and Francois for their fantastic races. And now let's go ahead and run through the rest of the news with Sanjay Rawal. Here we go. Well, Sanjay, how are you today and where are you today? I'm doing great. I am in 90 degree, 85% humidity, New York City. It's been a real summer here three months of ongoing brutal weather but you know it's like we dream of these days when it's minus 10 here in the winter and icy (laughs) um would this be a bad time to tell you that it's currently 57 degrees in crested butte last night i ran a track race 5000 meter race on a on a great track basically overlooking manhattan the race was at 9 p.m at night and the air temperature was 87 degrees with about 80% humidity, and it felt like swimming. Wow. So yeah, if, if it was 57 degrees, it would have been heaven. <laughs> Tell me more about this race, because you you did real good at this thing. The, t- the times were nothing to speak of, but I was in the fast heat with a bunch. I'm, I'm 46, and everyone else in my heat, I guarantee you, was under 27 years old. And there was a bunch of people that took off really fast, trying to break 15 minutes in the 5K. And I was just trying to do around 16 minutes. 
And as the race wore on, I actually realized I had caught the lead pack and was passing those runners and ended up finishing second and uh, took home a $200 Tracksmith gift card. So I guess, uh, you know, still making some money off of running. <laughs> I love it. Showing those young bucks what's what. Yeah, there's about 25 old guys in the audience. And I swear to God, each one of them came down to me afterwards and you know, wanted to hug me had I not been like just a puddle of sweat. <laughs> well, fair. Uh, well, hey, man, congratulations on the the good showing last night. The, the, the one thing it did give me insight into was the conditions in Tokyo. Uh, and running these races, you know, 5K on, on up in conditions that are just absolutely brutal for human physiology. You know, and speaking of Tokyo, Sanjay, we are going to be talking quite a bit in this conversation about the Olympics. And you and I hadn't actually talked that much during the Olympics. I was watching quite a bit of what was happening in track and field. And as the games were kind of winding down, I kept thinking to myself, I, I wonder if Sanjay's catching most of this. Um, and so I, I hit you up. Turns out, yes, you were in fact paying close attention. And I was like, Let's come on and kind of do a bit of a recap of, you know, in particular, what you found to kind of stand out and be particularly noteworthy about this past Olympics. So that is going to make up a lot of our agenda for today. Where do you want to start? Well, one of the first finals of the Olympics was the men's 10,000 meter race. And, you know, as people know, that's above six miles and conditions were absolutely brutal for that particular race and for, for all the distance races, you know, hot weather is very conducive to fast sprint times, basically, you know, 400 meters and faster. But when you start getting, you know, longer and longer races past a mile, people's physiology just can't handle it. I mean, that, that was the amazing thing about the, the men's race. The first, it was the first um, track and field final. You had, Ethiopian Solomon Borrega against pretty much the heavy favorite and world record holder, Joshua Cheptegei. And Joshua Cheptegei came in second and uh, totally unexpected result. Um, ended up coming back, you know, a week later, running the 5,000 meters and winning gold. But this just served to highlight probably the most epic performance, I think, in, in modern Olympic history. Sifan Hassan, Ethiopian-born, uh, Netherlands citizen who decided to do a triple that had never been attempted before. She did the 1500 meters, the 5000 and the 10,000. The only thing that that's ever been close to that and arguably even even more epic was Emil Zatopek, I believe in 1956, he ran and won the 5000 meters, the 10,000 meters and then entered the marathon, his first marathon ever and won gold in that. Sifan Hassan, you know, she ended up getting a, a gold in the 5,000. Then, you know, after a few brutal heats of the 1,500, ended up finishing a well-deserved third. Faith Kip Yegon from Kenya, who's the world's best by far, maybe the world's best ever in that distance, won the gold. And then Hassan came back and ran 10,000 meters and won gold. Absolutely brutal something like 24 kilometers of total racing including heats just out of curiosity 
of that triple, which like how would you rank those the three events in terms of difficulty? And let's just say this is a fully subjective question to be asking. And if you want to make the case, it's not actually that subjective. It's pretty objective. How would you rank this? All, all the races are brutal. So like, I think she started out with the 5,000 meters and she had to go through a heat of that. But for people who've run the 5,000 meters, it's basically, you're kind of going all out the whole time. It's like, it's literally like running a 1500 meter, a mile race, but you have to do that three times in a row. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the equivalent of the 800 meters literally being two 400 meters all out in a row. So that was her first race. And, and, and it was arguably one of the harder races she had to do. And, and she came out with the gold. But then, you know, she, in, in the middle of all that, she was going through 1500 meter heats. And there's kind of an epic, probably now famous clip of her in the semifinals with 400 meters to go getting clipped and tripping, falling, rolling, getting up, hammering the last 300 meters, catching the leader of that semifinal and winning. And, you know, it's it's like, it's it's as if she like burned all of her fuel in that race because when she had to come back, I believe the next day for the final, you know, she was in position to win, but just didn't have it at the end. And so you take the cumulative effect of two 5,000 meter races, three 1500 meter races and put her in a 10,000 meter race against somebody who's relatively fresh, um, G'day from Ethiopia, who set the women's world record in the 10,000 meters. You have her, you know, arguably the favorite with an exhausted Sifan Hassan uh, behind her. And Hassan took it in the last 200 meters. And, you know, uh, on the track at the end, she she collapsed and was, you know, gesturing pretty wildly and intensely for someone to bring her some water. So, you know, it's not so much that one race was harder, but it's like, could you imagine, you know, having run for a week and then having to do a 10K as your final race? Just the, the longest track race that there is. Nope, I can't. That's the answer to that. And so you really, like, in your view, this is one of the most standout Olympic performances in track and field in... Well, well no, no, one, no one has actually, I, I, I believe, at least for, for decades, men or women have, have attempted that triple. I mean, there are quite a few men that have done the 5,000, 10,000 double. Um, and, you know, Mo Farah won, won gold... Um, in each event, in two successive Olympics, and this Olympics, Joshua Cheptegei got silver in the 5K and then gold in the 10K. But to throw in a 1,500 meters in there and add the three heats, including the finals of the 1,500 meters, to the overall package of racing, it's like no one's attempted anything like that. I mean, again, going all the way back to 1956, where... Zatopek did the 5K, the 10K, and then capped it off with the marathon. Uh, yeah. Frank Shorter has done the t had done the 10K and the marathon, but you know three races and three medals. I mean, even if she'd gotten three bronzes, it would have been epic. But to come out with two golds and a bronze, the bronze in the 1500 meters against you know Faith Kipyegon, the basically you know. 
the best 1500 meter runner of all time is um, pretty epic. Yeah, that's kind of a tough one to follow up. I was about to ask, you know, okay, what's next? What else? And I feel like maybe we should just sign off and we can all think about that achievement. Maybe everybody can just hit the pause button for a little bit and uh, we'll, we'll soldier on here. What else in your view stood out from the games? I mean, of course, we'll talk about the, the 400 meter hurdles. You know, Ating Mo, American freshman, finished who now sophomore finished her her freshman year of college you know ended up entering the olympics with probably the highest level of expectations she's 19 years old and in the final she ended up setting the 800 meter american record i think it was 155 21 breaking ajay wilson's record you know she's been racing since the indoor season started in january 400 and 800 meters and ended up winning the 800 at NCAAs. And, you know, she's had nine months of racing. And after all of that and coming in being the heavy favorite, 19 years old, she lived up to expectations and crushed the field, you know, breaking 156 and winning the first of two golds. She ended up also being in the 4 by 400 relay, winning another gold. I mean, that's an incredible story. By the way, overall in this particular game, say compared to previous years, what sort of takeaways or generalizations did we see on the like the age front, right? Are we seeing, was this game's more about like, was it more impressive in terms of the youth and the performances of the youth, was it more impressive in terms of what veteran runners were doing? You know what I mean? Like, and I, I guess I'm curious how this might compare to previous Olympic Games. Yeah, I, I believe in, in 2012, the U.S. team, at least the men's team, pretty much was shut out of, of golds. Um, and then everybody, they bounced back in 2016. Um, and, you know, it was arguably uh, a year full of, of youngsters and up-and-coming stars. And, you know, I, I think the only American that won a gold medal in track and field was Ryan Krauser, who won the, the, the shot put. So it, it, it's, you know, again, of course, the U.S. men's 4x400 team won, won that relay, but no individual winners apart from Ryan Krauser. And it was, you know, it was a big debate, you know, in in the the kind of track news world. But the the narrative began to become clearer that this was kind of a year of youngsters. Like, you know, you you had, you know, if, on the women's side, you know, obviously some excellent gold medal winners like like Sydney McLaughlin, um, pretty darn young. I believe she's only twenty one years old. I think Mo. 19 years old. Um, but on the men's side, you know, you, you got young guys out there who won medals. Uh, Grant Holloway um, in the 110 hurdles. You had Kenny Bednarik, Noah Lyles, um, who will be here for years to come. You had a high school student, Arian Knighton, 17-year-old, 200-meter runner, who uh, made it to the semifinals. He's going to be a force for many, many years. And a number of, of people that didn't win medals, but showed a tremendous amount of potential. So it's almost like 
you know, this was the year of the youth and it was a year for the youth to, in some cases, shine, but in many cases, get a lot of experience. I mean, you had Grant Fisher on the, um, the men's 5,000 meter side, you know, coming in, um, actually in the 10,000 meters coming in, in fifth. And he's a young dude too. And, you know, you never know, like maybe in the next, you know, one or two or even three Olympic cycles, he could be up there on the podium. You mentioned it. Is it time to talk about the 400 meter hurdles? I mean, it was a, a set of epic performances. Everyone kind of knew that these two races, the men's 400 meter hurdles and the women's 400 meter hurdles would probably be won in world record times. Uh, in, in both races, there were heavy favorites coming in and those favorites performed very, very well. Karsten Morholm from, from Norway. For those who don't follow him on Instagram, you should. He's incredibly funny. Um, <laughs> you know, there was a, a record set by American Kevin Young, uh, 46.78 seconds, and that record stood for 29 years until this last July when Karsten Warholm broke the record in 46.7 seconds. Now, people thought that, you know, Rye Benjamin, the American from, from Mountain Vernon, New York, you know, would have some chance of, of, of winning. I mean, Rye certainly thought he did, but people also said Rye's presence in the race would definitely push Karsten. Rye and Karsten, I, I believe, purposely never really meet up until championship races. Um, they don't really like facing each other in maybe inconsequential meets. And so, you know, Carson Warholm ended up running 45.94 seconds, you know, dropping his record by, you know, more than three quarters of a second. Rye Benjamin went under the old record of Kevin Young as well. And so it was a race for the ages. I, I believe they said the equivalent of the 45.94 over barriers is, uh, you know, in the high 42s if there weren't barriers. Put it this way, if Karsten Warholm didn't already have the Norwegian four, flat 400 meter record, his 45.94 over hurdles would have set that national record. I mean, that's a crazy... That's crazy. Yeah. And for what it's worth, I mean, I, you know, I'm not somebody who has this long history with like the 400 meter hurdles, you know, it's not like I'm tuned into that. Uh, all the time and staying up on that. But it was, first of all, the, the combined men's and women's 400 meter hurdles was my personal favorite thing from this Olympic Games. And it it's just like, I think not that frequent when you actually could say, if you only watched an event one time in history, you know, one time in human history, if you watched the 400 meter hurdles, men's and women's, you saw the best two races ever, right? I mean, from certainly from a time point of view. And it was, I don't know, I thought that was just the performances were so remarkable from the top runners. We saw world records in both. The second place finishers in both races looked incredible. <laughs> like they looked so good, except they didn't win. I mean, it, it was, it was really mind blowing to me. And, um, maybe from that, I should, I should let you talk a bit more about the women's side of things. Well, Dalila Muhammad, who's actually from my neighborhood in Queens, New York city, uh, I believe she now lives and trains out in California, but dad is an imam here. And 
you know, the marathon team I'm a part of, this Reach In My Marathon team, does a number of like interfaith related ceremonies before some of our runs just to like really bring out the spiritual aspect. And her dad has come and, you know, been the kind of Muslim representative at, at, mm -hmm. at these running races. So for her, you can see that faith and athletics have kind of always gone together, you know, from a very young age on. And, you know, she, I, I believe she's 29, but she won the, the, the gold in the 2016 Rio Games. And she and Sydney, you know, they don't train together, but I think Sydney's the one who said that, you know, iron strengthens iron. Yeah. You know, that their friendship, you know, is not a rivalry. They know that they're pushing each other. And Delilah, you know, set the, the, the last world mark um, at the 2019 uh, Doha World Championships. And, you know, Sydney was a close second, but Sydney pushed Delilah to that record. Now, in this particular race, you know, Sydney came out on top, you know, running a 51.46, 400 meters with hurdles. Delilah came under the old world record, ran 51.58. And, you know, it, it's interesting because like no shade on anybody, but like Rye Benjamin was was distraught at his second place, even though, you know, he'd, he'd you know, done better than he'd ever done before. And, you know, he, he said to the press that he allows himself, you know, 24 hours to, to be emotional but he really wanted to win. And, and maybe that's, that's one mark of, of, of one type of champion. Um, on the other hand, Dalila Muhammad said like, hey, I've gone under my personal best and that's all I can expect you know, of myself. Just go out and do your best. And she, had a, she expressed a level of happiness for Sydney that we, you, you rarely see uh, from second place and, and, and first place winners. Pretty great. What a what a what a great day in the history of hurdles. The greatest day in the history of hurdles. Most of us have no experience hurdling ourselves, um, and it's 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 it needs to be said that you know these athletes are some of the actual best athletes in the world. Carson Warholm was training to be a professional decathlete before he realized that his superpower. Uh, wasn't speed it wasn't jumping it was jumping while going at speed and if you can imagine you know running all out and having one barrier at waist high length and having to clear that much less you know the 10 hurdles that they have to clear even when their legs are dying towards the end in the last 50 meters of death and having to have the precision and focus. Now keep in mind, they're going all out, but it's very precise. They're running a certain number of steps in between each hurdle. Uh, they're clearing hurdles with very specific legs uh, that might alternate, they might, that might not. And the amount of work that goes into that race to combine that explosiveness with that precision is just, it's just mind boggling. That's interesting. I haven't thought about like if we were going to try to make an analogy to another sport or like another skill set or something. Does anything sort of come to mind? I, I'm springing this on you, uh, you know, right now in the moment. But like, you know, like it's often talked about just the absolute ridiculous skill that's required to like, say, actually hit a baseball being thrown by a professional pitcher right and many people say that might be the most difficult skill set in professional sports i wonder what the analogy would be like on the hurdle side of it 
in terms of the like precision and power and specificity required to run at this level. I mean, in my own mind, it's the danger. Like how many times have you gone to a trail and there's a barrier or there's a fence? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you think that, oh, if I was 18, I would just jump over that chain, but you stop and you step over it. Because you go like, the worst thing that could happen is my season's over. Yeah. And these guys, these guys and these, these women have to like do 10 in a row. And you just go like, first of all, you know, if you hit it the wrong way, and I actually had a, a, a colleague on a track team break her tibia by hitting a hurdle and then crashing in an awkward way. Like on the track, broke her tibia. And you go like, people usually don't sign up for running races to like break their leg. And this is legit a kind of race where you could break a leg, you could sprain a leg, et cetera, et cetera. Bringing contact sports, the potential of turning a running event into a contact sport. Hurdles, ladies and gentlemen, sign up sign up now. There's a reason why none of us do like, you know, fun run hurdles or <laughs> never, never. You mentioned the decathlon a little bit ago when you were talking about Karsten. I think that's a nice segue to talk about this Olympic decathlon. And particularly, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Damian Warner. I'm curious to get your take on this, but I still feel like when we crown you know, a decathlon champion, the person who is the best at a combination of 10 sports. I feel like we maybe still aren't giving these people their proper due. I agree. I think it depends on the year and and maybe even the na- the nationality. It's like Ashton Eaton, um, you know, some folks from from Dave and Dan from from the 90s Americans it's like when Nike and NBC get behind somebody and put them on Wheaties boxes make massive posters of them you know make, you know really hype up rivalries in, in those years audience members and viewers learn about the decathlon and it was like this last Olympics, because maybe because Damien is Canadian, in the U.S. there was no hype at all. I'm, I'm sure in Canada there was tons and tons of hype. But at the same time, it, it's, it's like you said, it's like since we now have these competitions on TV like America's American Ninja Warrior, et cetera, where you see like multi-sport athletes. Yeah. It's hard to to quantify how much better these pro athletes are from like parkour experts or like general all around athletic folks, you know, double threats, for example, um, people who can go two ways in college football or, you know, that can shoot and dunk on the basketball court. Because um, you wonder why like having the athletic progress that these guys have, like, and it's first thought that comes to my mind is like, well, they weren't good enough to go play pro football or they weren't good enough to go like play pro basketball if they were such good athletes. So I guess in, in the world of money and sponsorship and fame, yeah, they, they don't get they don't get the, the due that they deserve. I'm just asking you to help explore this with me. And so I, I don't know if we end up anywhere, particularly, you know, 
incisive on this, but like, but we don't look at, say, Sydney McLaughlin and think, well, yeah, but I doubt she's that great at the 5,000 meter. You know what I mean? Like, so I guess what is it? Is it just, is it a natural thing where we tend to put a bit more focus on, for some reason, people who happen to absolutely excel and be the best of the best at one thing, as opposed to being the best of the best at like literally 10 things, the combined. Like if you told me that say in the reigning champion in the decathlon was as popular as a LeBron James or a Tom Brady or something. I'd be like, well, that makes sense, right? They, they're combining all these different events. And so they're, they're just held up as being like, that's incredible that you can be the best person at a combined 10 events. But that's not quite how it plays. I, I think you're right. And I think that's, that's a general thing in sports. It's like... Not, with the exception of maybe one or two events and one or two decathletes, nobody could make an Olympic final in any single event if they if they stepped out of the decathlon. I mean, Carlston Warham could, but he wasn't a great decathlete. He actually, you know, stepped off of the decathlon and and focused on the four hundred meter hurdles. But it's like I think it's akin to like the basketball player who nobody appreciates except for, except for great fans and a great coach, you know, who might have like two blocks a game, you know, one steal a game, score 10 points a game, you know, have like 12 rebounds a game, six assists a game. And, or e- even somebody that has a triple double, but it's always like 12 points, 10 assists, 10 rebounds. Yeah. Where it's like you can't really appreciate their greatness in one discipline, but you look at their number of triple doubles and you go like, yeah, that's got to stand for something exceptional. Okay. I think you've convinced me. I think you've made a compelling case. I mean, like decathletes work harder than any other track athlete in terms of time. Like they, I, well, one of my oldest friends was a, a national caliber decathlete in the U.S., and I mean, he'd literally spend seven or eight hours out of the track every day because, you know, you're, you're working on, you're lifting, you know, you're working on javelin form, then, then you go out and you do some sprints, then you get in a, a, a little distance run, easy distance run in because you've also got to do the, the 1500 meters. Um, you might be working on some explosive drills for your jumping. You might be like, you know, watching YouTube videos of other people's performances and you got to crap load of equipment obviously you know that's one day the next day you might spend four hours on pole ball technique and it's just like there's almost not enough time in the day just to become skillful at what you're doing like the shot put the javelin the 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 discus the hurdles the pole vault there's nothing similar between any of those in terms of technique the high jump the long jump nothing similar you know, you take all those events and you go like, this person's got to be not best in the world, but they've got to be pretty much national national class in all of these events. I mean, with the exception of one, everybody gets a throwaway event, usually the 1500 meters. Usually the 1500. No, but nobody's really that great at that. I was also curious to kind of just get your overall sense of the state of track and field that can either be just the state of track and field today in general, or like, I guess 
maybe if you want to narrow that a bit more toward the Olympics, like this, the track and field events, you know, this year versus previous years in the Olympics. What are your thoughts on this? Where are we kind of in the sport? I mean, the the interesting thing is, as 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 double edged as this sword is, like you've got these young stars that have zillions of social media followers, and so like you've got people like Sydney McLaughlin, you've got a Ting Mo, you know, you've got you know the American sprinter Shakari Richardson, who you know wasn't allowed to go to the Olympics, who like, Shakari has been on the Today Show, like. Yeah. Some of these people are being discussed in mainstream media and like Shakari, you know, brought so many eyeballs to the Prefontaine Classic, the big track meet yeah. held, you know, the end of August in, in in Eugene. And you go like there's almost never been a contingent of female track stars or male track stars, it just happens that these are female that have that type of following. And all the distance runners, the steeplechasers, Courtney Frerichs, Emma Coburn, you know, uh, folks up and down the, the, the aisle there, they all have like huge social media followings. Yeah. They're able to like, you know, get people to watch races that they normally wouldn't or get people involved, not just in the Olympics, but in the entire buildup to those Olympics. So I don't know what the ratings were like, but it's like, I had friends who never watch running and they watch the Olympic trials, and they watch the Olympics. So your takeaway is, again, we don't know what the what the numbers were like, but in a way, I guess I guess that's a question how how relevant we think that is, right? Like, what if we learned, you know, the viewership for track and field events was actually quite a bit up? Would we feel differently if it, if we learned that actually it was the opposite? They were quite a bit down because like you say, with the amount of exposure that quite a few track and field athletes are getting, do we see this as overall a really positive thing in terms of exposure for the sport or, or bringing new people into the sport? Like, let's just talk to that question of ratings how important do you view whatever the numbers were for track and field events at the Olympics as being a significant metric for like the health of track and field? I mean, I don't think we could be in a better place. People may or may not know, but the, the world championships are going to be in Eugene, Oregon next year. And, you know, whether or not the Olympics were, um, uh, kind of like successful in terms of ratings. I, I would think that the combination of the Olympic trials, a couple of the, the powerful storylines like Shakari Richardson and I think Mo and then Sydney McLaughlin, um, I, I think those created a number of new track fans. And I think that'll carry through next summer. And I, I think it may, remains to be seen whether these people stick with track all the way through 2024. But, you know, you've got the, these 2022 worlds that I think were supposed to be in 2021. You've got, I believe, 2023 worlds in track and field. You've got the 2024 Olympics. You've got 2025 worlds. 
So it's like, there's a whole bunch of championships coming up. And it's clear that these championship level races where Rye Benjamin does race Carson Warholm, where Delilah and Sydney both could possibly break, you know, the former world record each, where I think Mo has got the, the, the ambition to see if she could double in both the 400 and the 800 meter races in Paris in 2024. And, you know, she's probably going to have a test run of that, you know, either next summer or in the 2023 World Championships. So you, you've got people that are, you know, breaking barriers that folks thought were impossible. You've got people trying to do these, um, Americans trying to do these crazy doubles. Uh, and Anna wants to break the, the, the decades-old 800-meter world record, which was set, you know, questionable doping circumstances 30 years ago. So it's like there's a lot of exciting benchmarks that people are going to be reaching towards. And again, it's like a, a lot of folks I know didn't necessarily like watch all the races live, but they heard about Sifan Hassan tripping and tumbling in the 1500 meter race, the semifinals, and they watched that. You know, they, they heard about the great races in the hurdles and they, they went back onto YouTube and they watched that. I know a lot of folks tuned in to the Prefontaine Classic just to see some of those stars, you know, a week or two past their Olympic exploits. Well, I think let's call that our Olympic recap. Nice job, Sanjay. I, I knew my impulse was <laughs> perhaps a good one in saying, um, you know, we ought to get you on here to talk about just, it's fun just hearing you talk about how you viewed this and you've just done a great job of um, articulating a number of the different incredible things that did just go down at the game. So well done. I think though, let's maybe get away from the Olympic track and talk about what's been going on in the world of say ultra trail running. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, as, as we're recording this, you know, it's like UTMB is, is in full force. Obviously, you know, Leadville just concluded, had a great storyline. Um, you know, as, as you guys explored on the women's side and, you know, on, on the men's side as well. Yeah. And I was less familiar with the men's winner of Leadville than with the women's winner, Annie Hughes, who we just talked to on our last off the couch conversation. What can you tell us about Adrian McDonald? I, I don't know Adrian personally, but like, what a great story. You know, he, I believe he went to you know, an, I, an Ivy League school, um, but, you know, grew up in, in, in Massachusetts, you know, not at altitude and, you know, was a, a, a 440 miler in high school and then kind of focused on the one mile in college, ran 412, I believe. And apparently, you know, according to an interview he just did with, with, with Let's Run.com, he, uh, you know, tried to better that mile to to 410, but never really could, a bunch of injuries. And being from Boston, decided to kind of push up to road marathons, ran a 225 or so at Boston. I believe he was, he was 53rd that year um, and was planning to run the 2020 edition of the Boston Marathon, which obviously was canceled. He took to trying to set an, uh, an FKT out in Massachusetts, missed it by a second, but then again, a week or so later, someone else like bettered that record by by a few minutes, and um, 
you know, began looking at mountain races, trail races, moved out to Colorado, you know, got a coach, Andrew Epperson, who actually represented the, the U.S. in the marathon in uh, 2019. And this coach himself has a, a personal best, I think, of 213. Um, and he basically, you know, coached Adrian to, you know, uh, the 100-mile the, the distance. I, I think the Leadville 100-miler was the first one that Adrian had, had ever done. Um, he'd, he'd done a 50-miler, I believe, out in Utah. Um, and he, he won that race, you know, almost 10 minutes ahead of, of, of the closest competitor and realized that even though he wasn't born at altitude, he kind of has this, like, uncanny ability to do well in altitude. And I, I, I believe like, you know, with, with, with regard to Leadville, he didn't set out trying to win the race, but you know, he was advised by a, a trail running mentor, you know, to try to run around 17 hours. And he, he knew in the back of his mind that, you know, that normal podium uh, time or requirement is usually around 17 hours. And so, you know, knew what he had to do, knew what he felt he could do according to people who knew more than him and just went out and felt good. And I, I believe from around mile 40 onward, you know, he was, he was in the lead. That, yeah, apparently I'm into other sports analogies today, but hearing you talk about that, just, it sounds a little bit like flashing a climbing route you know, or probably more like flashing a, I don't know, a multi-pitch trad route or something, you know, like you're just in uncharted territory and you just keep making the right move and the right decision and, you know, kind of keep pacing the right and all the rest. And it, that is, um, that's a remarkable thing to just roll up to and, uh, have it all align and walk away with a first place at Leadville. Yeah, and as, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, it's like, it's not an easy race. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know, it's like, what, 15,000 feet of, of of elevation gain out and back. So, like, on the way back, if you're leading, you see all the people that could catch you. And, you know, he had three-time winner, Ian Sharman, uh, I believe, in, in, in second place at at that point and then you know Anton Kropichka you know coming up strong obviously you know second place ended up going to Matt Flaherty and, and Anton was was third but you see people with those pedigrees looking good also you're gonna be a little nervous and I gotta <laughs> gotta give a shout out to a good friend David Kilgore um, from New York City who kind of it's like a multi-distance specialist a little bit of a, a unique fellow like I, I believe in 2018 he ran three sub 230 marathons in the span of two months um like you know the the new york caliber races maybe even philly and and another um you know he was on the u.s national team for the 50k trail event he did the speed project, the distance run from L the team distance run from LA to Las Vegas, usually done in teams, but he did it on his own. And I, you know, was run a bunch of hundred milers 
free flow for charity and ended up on the podium at Leadville, um, breaking 20 hours in his first attempt at a, at a trail 100. So, you know, not quite as, as fast as Adrian, but you know, it's like this bunch of people, I believe like, like Adrian that are just jumping into these exceptionally hard races, having been strong, you know, sub two thirty marathoners and going like, Oh wow, I'm actually better than sub elite at these races. I'm actually elite and I'm, I'm a winner. What else should we talk about in the world of ultra? Well, the most non-traditional in the world that <laughs> had a, a postponement for the 2020 year is now starting in a few days here in New York City, the Self-Transcendence 3,100-mile race, pretty much 5,000 kilometers. Seven runners managed to get, these days, entry visas um, into the U.S. to be able to do this race starting September 5th through October 26th, all around a haloed city block in Queens that's 0.5788 miles around. So to complete the 3,100 miles, people have to do about 5,600 loops of this, you know, averaging at least 59.9 miles per day to finish in the 52-day window. Uh, so it's a a different sort of feat that requires a lot more patience. But hey, normally the race is held in the summer. And if it was this summer in New York City, I think the race would have had to been shut down for several days because of the extraordinarily high heat index. But it starts in September and will end in like the cool sub 50 degree weather of New York's October. So folks can can follow that at 3100 film on Instagram, um, and we'll be posting daily updates for that. And hopefully next time we check in, uh, I'll be able to give you guys splits on people's thousand mile split, 1500 mile split. It's so crazy. I often find myself like just thinking about and talking how like, wow, we're really, you know, 200s seem to be the new 100, right? And 240s are becoming kind of more common and where we going next in terms of like longer and longer races. And um, I do have to catch myself sometimes because it's like, you know, there is that one in New York, 3,100 miles. And, you know, in 2019, yeah, totally different marathon team staged that same distance in Greece. And so, like, we're not the only ones anymore who huh. are doing this distance. Someone else was like, this is, a, after 20 years of watching it, this is a great idea, I guess. Let's <laughs> let's do one here in Greece. And they did. It was great. Huh. So, it's like, as, as you all out there in Colorado began thinking about doing 200 milers, there's folks out here that are like, hey, let's do more 3,100 mile races. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. It's remarkable. When are we going to get you running the 3100? Maybe someday, maybe never. But where to where? Like we were talking about Shakari Richardson, 400 yeah. meter hurdles. And somehow we we got up to a race which would be effectively about 12, close to 12,500 laps on a track. That is so wild. When did the Olympic Games 
start having the 30, <laughs> the 3,100 mile run? You know, uh, in, in the 1996 Atlanta Olympics, the women's winner from the 3,100 mile race that summer was given a standing ovation, you know, on a, probably a lesser attended earlier night, but they, they spotted her and they flashed her up on the uh, screen and she stood up and people might not have known what they were really clapping for, but the stadium clapped for her. So you never know, maybe that's a seed, maybe in a hundred years, you know, we'll, we'll start seeing real distances at the Olympics. My goodness. Well, Sanjay, it is always fun to talk about anything. Well, frankly, it's always fun to talk, yeah, about anything with you. But um, I always really, really enjoy getting to hear your thoughts and your perspective on uh, on these various running events. And um, man, we we just went from from sprinting to thirty one hundred mile races. So I do think it's kind of fair to say we we really kind of covered the gamut today. This was a lot of fun, and it's something that you and I have been talking about. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna try to twist your arm and and get you back on here more regularly to kind of um, fill us in on this uh, you know running stuff in the news. And so uh, I've enjoyed this one, and look forward to doing it again with you. Likewise, thanks so much, Jonathan. All right, Sanjay, you take care. You too. Well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. I want to say thanks to Sanjay, as always, for the great conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Please keep moving forward. And don't forget to check out our series on Mountain Town economics and affordable housing issues over on our Blister podcast feed. All right, that's it for now. Bye, everybody.